So if you're here last week, we started we, uh, in 1 Samuel, the book that's all about Israel looking for a king, which in ancient Near Eastern terms meant looking for security and safety and prosperity. And uh, what we really are doing, as we discovered last week at the end of the service, is we're getting this, we're almost getting to step into a time machine and be transported back into the middle of ancient Israelite worship and see what they were doing. As we left Hannah in the temple or at the tabernacle in Shiloh last week, she had uh, her prayer being answered for a son, but even more than that, through the worship experience, through God drawing her into worship and through prayer, God had revealed himself to her as so much more as everything that she truly ever needed. And through that experience, uh, she found the peace and security that she was looking for. And they responded by bringing this extravagant vow offering to the temple at Shiloh, to the, to the tabernacle at Shiloh of three bulls. And, and, and in the middle of this liturgy, of this liturgy of vow offering that we saw at Shiloh, the high, the high priest would have read a portion of Psalm 22, which is basically a psalm all about how the Messiah, the coming Messiah, is going to be forsaken by God so that we will never have to be. Then the bulls were slaughtered, the sacrifice was made, and then Hannah would follow up on that with a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. And that's what we're going to hear tonight, is Hannah offering up out of the joy of her heart from the transformation that has occurred in her soul through the process and through the beauty of worship uh, she offers this prayer up to the living God, and we get to listen in. So would you please stand, if you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, and let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then Elkanah went home to Ramah, And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of the beautiful things that you tell us about yourself in it, Lord, and how beautiful it is that you tell us these stories 
about real people who struggled and suffered in the same ways that we did, who were looking for peace and security in the same ways that we are, who were looking for it in the wrong things and being disappointed and how ultimately through these stories you show us how to find what we are looking for only in you, that we will only be satisfied in you, Lord. And as Hannah found that out, Lord, I pray that you would show that to us today, Lord. Also show us worship and what it is and how beautiful it is and how transformative you have made it to be so that we might become more like Jesus, so that we, our hearts might truly rejoice in you, Lord. And so we pray uh, all of these things, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. In most primitive cultures, they have something called a rite of passage. Usually when young men, young women are coming into manhood or womanhood, there's some sort of crazy test or, or, or endurance ritual or some sort of ceremony that they go through uh, in order to prepare them as a rite of passage marking the, the, the demarcation line between childhood and adulthood. Uh, and the purpose, big purpose behind those rite of passage ceremonies is, uh, is to, to give an experience that shifts our conscious perception of reality. Uh, in, the, in the Western world, we get a little freaked out by that kind of stuff, right? We're so material-based, so rational-based that we think completely about this, the process of transformation or being transformed in such a way uh, that it's, we almost always think in the terms of academic study. We learn things through our minds. We understand knowledge, and that transforms us. Or we can, we'll think of it in terms of exercise. We go to the gym and, and work out, and we can be physically transformed. But the thought of being like spiritually transformed or the thought of a, 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 an experience that changes us is kind of weird. We like, and when we hear about stuff like that, even in the church, we typically, even in the Western church, we typically try to like relegate that to some kind of like weird spiritual stuff that they do in Encinitas, but not here, not downtown. <laughs> I grew up in Encinitas, so I can say that. Um, but, but we borrow it. We borrow the stuff all the time, right? You see, like, for example, corporate corporations will have these big... You know, they'll have their seminars and then they'll march all these CEOs and, and CFOs out into the parking lot where there's a 30-foot trail of burning embers and they all take their shoes off and run across it. Uh, or we, back in the day, prior to Christian days, uh, we were, I was very involved in the piercing community and we would do uh, things called energy pulls or we would actually hang people from hooks. We would put hooks through people's skin and hoist them up on pulleys. My band, we would do this while we played. We would have people hanging from hooks behind us. Uh, (laughs) 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 Confession time, right? (laughs) Uh, There's some people in this room who are part of that. Pascal, you want to come up? He's going to demonstrate for us now. Uh, We got some hooks in the back. No, but seriously, people would do that 
as a, as a rite of passage, as a way, of, an experience that would change conscious perception of reality. Even, there's even Christian ministries that do stuff like this. They'll take a kid, 14-year-old kid, drop him off in the middle of the Rocky Mountains with a compass and a can of tuna fish and say, good luck. And he has to find his way back to civilization. It's a rite of passage. It all has the same underlying principles in it in that it's an experience that shifts your conscious perception of reality. And sadly, most of these, a lot of these, some of them may be worthwhile, but a lot of them are really antithetical to the gospel because the shift in consciousness and the hope that they offer is really, especially for what we used to do, is that you can just handle way more pain than you thought you could and therefore you're just not as scared of the fallen world as you used to be. And that's not hope. That's not hope. At best, that's callousing your soul so that the fearful reality of the world we live in isn't able to touch you as hard as it used to. Really, what these things are is, is in some ways, counterfeit spiritual experiences. They are, uh, in, the, in the cases like energy poles and hanging people from hooks, they are a, a double, doubly bad. They're wrong, wrong worship, wrong God. That's really bad. It's also per- possible in some of these things to get wrong worship, right God. That happens. Sometimes it gets right worship, wrong God. That happens. Uh, but what, the reason why things like that, those, those experiential things that have transformative power, the reason why they have that power is because like any lie, they're based on the semblance of truth. And the truth that they're based on is that what the transformative power that happens when you get right worship with right God lined up correctly. And that is what Christian worship really is. That's the point. Why am I telling you about hanging people from hooks? Uh, It's because Christian worship is fundamentally not just an intellectual exercise. We're not here learning facts about God that transform us. It is fundamentally and always has been Uh, a mystical experience in the presence of God that shifts our conscious perception of reality and therefore brings us out of despair and into joy. That's what Christian worship is. That's what we do when we come here. That's what God does to us when we come here. And it's not to a false hope. It's not just mind control or behavior modification or pain mastery or anything about the physical world. It is having our minds redirected to the true hope, to the promises of God, and that is what we have just witnessed happening to Hannah through this story. She has she moved from the bitterness of despair to a woman who is singing these praises of rejoicing to God for his salvation, and that happened through this process of worship that we see Hannah engaged in. And so the big idea big idea of this whole section of this passage, what we're going to talk about, is that worship transforms us through confession to rejoice in the Lord. Worship transforms us through confession to rejoice in the Lord. Let's take that one part at a time. First, worship transforms us. Let's think about Hannah for a second before, uh, let's give it the before and the after picture. Hannah Hannah 1.0, the beta version uh, last week in chapter one, we saw that she was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. That was her reality. But this week, 
Hannah 2.0, the new Hannah, she says this. Hannah prays and she says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. What happened? What happened to Hannah that transformed her from the bitterness of despair to where she is? Well, the the progression, starting from last week, she was in bitter despair. God drew her in. She got up. She went to the tabernacle. Uh, she, uh, God revealed himself to her through her prayer and in that revelation she realized that God was enough, that she was precious to him and that's all that really mattered, that everything else was okay. And then she went her way, her face was no longer sad. She, gives the, she offers up her deepest desires, her son, back to God. Uh, she shows up at the offering of her son with this extravagant offering of gratitude for God's mercy and grace. And now her praise continues throughout her worship. And the change of heart isn't just because of the gift of her son that she was giving away. She was literally transformed through the worship experience by God into someone whose eyes had been spiritually opened and she saw the reality of the world and the spiritual reality that we lived in. She saw the beauty of Christ and she did the only reasonable thing. She worshiped him and praised him and thanked God for the abundance that she had in Christ, in the shadows that she saw, right? Well, here's the, here's the best part. I'm just like by way of review, but this is what I, was, this is what I talk about particularly this point. The best part of it is that it works whether you feel it or not. It works whether you're feeling it or not. In other words, you don't have to get all hyped up to come to worship. That's backwards, right? How did Hannah feel that day she showed up to church on the, on the, at the door of the tabernacle? How was she feeling? She was feeling irritated. This is what the Bible says. Anybody come to church feeling irritated today? (laughs) She was feeling deeply distressed. Sometimes you come in here deeply distressed. She was feeling bitter. Can I get an amen? (laughs) She was feeling troubled. She was full of great anxiety. That's real. You don't always come in here ready to to jump up and down. You know, sometimes we come in here from being beat up in the world, from just the reality of suffering under sin in the world, sin in our hearts. And we come in here sometimes irritated, distressed, bitter, troubled, and great anxiety. And the, the beautiful thing about worship is that it still works even when you show up like that. Listen, this is, this, is, this is a quote from Eugene Peterson from a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Great pastor. He says this, Eugene starts off saying, feelings are great liars. Tell us, tell us what you really think, Eugene. Feelings are great liars. If Christians worshipped only when they felt like it, they would be precious little worship. 
Feelings are important but completely unreliable in matters of faith. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different. We can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Can I just read that again? Uh, We can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. Uh, Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God in worship, our deep, essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured, and being in His presence, He begins to change us. How many times have you come here in great anxiety, and by the time we get to the reading of the gospel, you're almost crying? Man, all the time that happens to me. And I got to sit up here and like lead the service, you know? And inside I'm just, <laughs> want to break something. I'm doing the call to worship, you know? I try to be cool. And by the time we roll around and I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving the declaration of pardon, I'm crying because the Spirit has transformed my heart. And so God uses worship to bring us into a close contact with his presence. And once we're there in the presence of the Lord, he does this work of realigning us to reality. And he does that through confession. Through confession, that's the second part. Worship transforms us to through confession. Uh, in January of 1986, there were two engineers, a guy named Bob Ebeling and another guy named Roger Boys Jolly, and three other colleagues uh, who were contracted engineers who worked for the company that designed and built the booster rockets for the Challenger spacecraft. Uh, and they spent all of January 27th arguing with mid-level managers at NASA that the O-rings to the booster rockets had a dangerous flaw where they were capable of failing when they went into low temperatures. And the next morning, July 28th, the space shuttle was set to launch in the coldest weather it had ever been launched in. And after they argued all day, Bob went home and told his wife, it's going to blow up. And he woke up the next morning and watched it happen on TV. He's a religious man, and he has been plagued by guilt. He's 91 now. He's been plagued by guilt for 30 years, thinking I could have done something more. But but the reality was, he was presenting presenting the real version of reality to these mid-level NASA managers, and they just didn't want to hear it. They had had what they wanted to do, and so they ignored him. And later, Bob said, they had their minds set on going up and proving to the world that they were right and they knew that what they were doing, but they didn't. As it turned out, Bob and Rob, Roger were presenting them with reality, but they didn't want to agree with it. The word confession really means to say the same thing. A little hyper-literal translation would be same word. 
It means to say the same thing about reality that God says about reality. If the NASA engineers had confessed the same thing as Bob and Roger, there would have been no disaster. But instead they insisted on believing uh, in their own version of reality. There's two kinds of confession. The first is a confession of sin. And that's basically believing God's version of who we are versus our version of who we are. Our version of who we are is self-reliant, powerful, uh, self-sustaining, basically good. But Hannah says that God sees right through us, that he is a God of knowledge. That means he knows us to the core of our being, not just our actions, but the motives behind our actions. Not just the face that we put on for the world, but the secret thoughts of our hearts and what we toy with in the secrecy of our own minds. That God sees right through it. He's a God of knowledge and that to him, uh, in him, by him, actions are weighed. In other words, he knows when we are suppressing the truth. (laughs) He knows when we are suppressing the truth about reality in order to do what we want to do. And, um, and there's a serious warning in these passages with that. The confession of sin uh, is preceded by a serious warning. We just sang a song about how beautiful the, that God is to give us these warnings uh, because they're for our benefit. And the warnings is that is, he puts it, you know, Hannah prays it in these terms of, of the reversal of fortune, that the strong will become weak, the rich will become poor, the fertile will become barren. And sometimes that happens in life, but we know that that's not always true, but it always happens in death. It always happens in death. In other words, you can look up to the sky and scream, the O-rings will not fail as long as you want. But the reality is that we are broken and we are sinful and our O-rings will fail and there will be disaster outside of Christ and outside of God. It says that the ones who speak so proudly in verse 3, it says uh, cut off in darkness. It's really silenced. They will be silenced in darkness and the darkness is, a, is, a, is the darkness that's always used for spiritual darkness. Not, if we, not like we turn the lights out, but complete and utter isolation from all the goodness of God. Because the warning is that to refuse to agree with God about reality is to invite disaster. But it's not to make us... Uh, um, not to shame us, not to make us remorseful. It's so that we might see our desperate need for Christ. The second kind of confession is a confession of faith. We look to God, it's believing God's version of who he is rather than our version of who he is. All kind of versions of who God is all based on what we want him to be, but there's a very clear picture of who God really is and the picture is that he's merciful, that he's overflowing with compassion, that he's overflowing 
with kindness. Uh, look at what happens in verse 6. Look at verse 6. There's a subtle shift that happens. It goes from a theme of reversal of fortune to uh, all positive statements. It says, the Lord kills and brings to life. The Lord brings down to Sheol and raises up. He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. This isn't a reversal of fortune anymore. This is all the same person, in other words. This is a picture of the God who breaks so that he can heal, who brings low so he can raise up. That's exactly what happened to Hannah. God brought her low. She turned to God in her desperation and need and God exalted her. He showed her who he really is. In other words, God is a God who brings us into the disaster that we need so that we will turn to him, agree with him on his version of reality of who we really are as a, so that we will reach out for Christ so that we will reach out for Jesus, who is what we really need. He reveals himself to us as he truly is, and the more we know about who he really is, the more our hearts rejoice. That's the last part. That worship transforms us through confession to rejoice in the Lord. Hannah begins her prayer with, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. And then she ends it speaking about this horn again. That the Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. A horn, uh, it's, a, it's a graphic picture of a horned animal that's prancing proudly because it realizes its power and strength. And so what she's saying is that in the Lord... Her horn is going to be exalted because God is going to exalt or raise up the power of his king. Which should make us ask a question. What king? What king is Hannah talking about? There are no kings in Israel. There's not going to be a king for 60 years. Some scholars want to say, okay, well, this, this must mean uh, that this was, a, this, was written, this was something that was written later, and then a later editor came in and stuffed it back in here because it talks about a barren woman. Hannah was barren. Must be it, right? And they say because there was no king in Israel at the time, she can't be... Re- Hannah can't be asking and, and praising God for the future king. But, it, I mean, that's just kind of silly the Mosaic Law lays out all the prescriptions for the king of Israel. There, in the period of the judges of Israel, the whole society is in such utter disarray and corruption that the people are already crying out to God to send them deliverance in a king. So what king is she talking about? Is she talking about Samuel, her own son? Does she think Samuel is going to grow on to be a king? Well, that doesn't happen. Is she talking about maybe Saul? She's prophesying about King Saul who's to come. Well, that, that was a big epic fail. That didn't happen. Maybe she's talking about David, the Davidic kingdom. But even if you read the Davidic story, you find out at the end that even though God was, uh, David was a man after God's own heart, at the end he let everybody down. 
So what king is she talking about? Well, lucky for us, it's embedded right here in the text by just looking at what the king will do. Look what it says. It says the king will cause the feeble, that's those who stumble. It's a picture of those who are stumbling through the world, through the pressure of sin and the curse. That God, through the king, will cause those who stumble to bind on strength. That's a clothing metaphor. Somehow there will be strength that we will put on like clothing. Uh, It says that those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It says that this king will bring to life and raise from the dead. That ain't David. It says that he will cause us, this king will cause us, make it possible for us to inherit a seat of honor at his table. This is lowly Hannah, rural farmer's wife, crying out this prayer. And last but not least, it says that he, he will guard his faithful ones. The word guard is the word always used talking about keeping the law. It's saying really that the king will be our law keeper. And his faithful ones, it comes from the word from, for God's covenant love, has said. It means really his covenant ones. And there's, there's a possessive nature of it. It's his covenant ones. We belong to him. Those who have been brought into this covenant will have a law keeper who guards us and keeps us safe. What king are we talking about? Any guesses yet? One last hint. One last hint. Luke chapter one, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary uh, and tells her that she's going to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah, and this is what Mary says. Listen to her prayer. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. For generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You hear that? It's the, it's the same themes as Hannah's prayer. It's almost the same order. Mary's almost replicating it in, by doing so. What she's saying is what Hannah prayed for, what Hannah prophesied, in her doxology of a prayer of thanksgiving and praise is happening now through the birth of the Lord Jesus. And that's the answer. Who is the king that Hannah was looking forward to? She's looking forward to Jesus. And so that's why we rejoice. That's why we rejoice. We enter into this worship and God reaffirms all these promises to us that we are sinful creatures. But he loves us so much that while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were without strength, 
Christ came and died for us. And if he did that, we know he's not going to let us go. He's not going to let us go now after all that. And in that, we can rejoice. And in that rejoicing, we are transformed. Amen? Now, quick epilogue. If you're paying attention, you'll see that there's been a pattern in that whole story from the entry of Hannah's entry into when Hannah got up and was drawn into the tabernacle, there was a pattern of worship that comes right out of the text. God invited her, called Hannah to worship him in the midst of her suffering. He revealed himself to her through the worship. She responded in adoration and praise. There's serious warning and a call for confession of sins, believing who God says we are, not for shame, but for forgiveness. There's a confession of faith, believing in God for who he says he is. There's a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And then there's a rejoicing in God's amazing grace. Does that sound familiar? You know, for thousands of years, the Spirit has drawn godly men and women to search the Scriptures to see what does it say about worship. We're not the first ones to try and figure worship out. And primarily, more than anything, what Christian worship is, is a mystical experience with the divine where God the Father meets us through his Son, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, we receive life. And in that, we are transformed. God calls us, he comes to us, calls us to worship. We respond in adoration. We hear his voice in the reading from the law. We confess our sins together. We hear him declare his unbreakable covenant love for us in the gospel. He reassures us that our sins are forgiven. And we confess him as Lord and respond with heartfelt thanksgiving and praise. And then through the elements of bread and wine, Jesus is presented to us. He is communing with us. He is truly with us. And in his presence, we are strengthened, we are united, and we are loved. And we respond with rejoicing. For a thousand years, Christian liturgies told this story. 2,000 years, Christian liturgy has told the story of the gospel. And it does it because this is what God has given us to come into his presence and to be transformed by worship from bitterness to rejoicing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing goodness to us. In your word, we thank you for the goodness to us in worship. We thank you for revealing these things to us through the church, Lord. And then we pray, Lord, that we would not take this for granted, but that we would be um, diligent, Lord, no matter how we feel, to come to your house every week and to hear from you and to be restored uh, by your beautiful word and by the sacrament and by your presence and by each other, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us. Uh, And we pray, Lord, that we would honor you in all our ways. In Jesus' name, amen.